All right, well, we've got a couple of announcements to remind everybody of. We have 10 people who are getting baptized on on a Saturday, and we've had to change things because of the weather. And it just, it, in fact, this morning I saw on Channel 13 that, or this afternoon they upped the chance of rain and thunderstorms to 80% for Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, so it's going to be a... It's going to rain this weekend, and that's not good if you're going to be outdoors in a pool to be a lightning rod. So not wanting to expose my congregation to that, we're, we I called David Dunn, and he said very graciously made their baptistry at Grace Bible Church available. It's off Schroeder Road, which is, I think it's like the first exit or so, uh, after Willowbrook Mall, or the first major street to the right after. It's the Grant exit. Okay, but Schroeder, the, yeah, the church is on. Yeah, the church is on Schroeder. So you take that first exit on Grant Road, and then go to Schroeder and turn right. Um, so I encourage you to get out there. It's going to be at two thirty to fit some schedules. So. Uh, everybody's uh, good with that, so I appreciate that flexibility. And then we're going to have our last meet and greet on candidates for um, who are going to be running for office in November, and that will be a week from Saturday at, at 8 o'clock on the 10th. So invite whoever you want to, let people know, put the word out. We're going to have uh, two speakers, Fred Shukart, who has spoken here before. He's a candidate for the 109th Civil District Court. And then uh, Representative Tom Oliverson, who is a congressman from Tomball and Tomball de Cypress, that that area. So both of these guys are are very good. Fred talked two or three years ago. He's just outstanding, very informative, very educational. And I got to know Tom Oliverson at the. Uh, National Association of Christian Legislators conference that I spoke at back in June, and he's um, he just seems like a great guy. He is an anesthesiologist by uh, by trade and career, so that will be on Saturday morning, September the tenth. And for those of you who missed the last time, or maybe both of them, uh, everybody was commenting uh, after on both of them that they just learned a lot about state government and county government and city government and how these things work. And that's the main idea is we need to understand what's really going on and how government works, and we need to be selecting leaders that are of um, uh, have integrity and understand the process and know what they're doing. It's not on-the-job training. And then the Israel tour next year, still working out some of the details, is June 6th through 19th. And if you're interested, please let us know. We have uh, somewhere around 17 to 20 that have expressed interest in the trip. Some, are, I know, are, are very, very interested. So uh, I'm hoping and praying that we'll have around 30. That's just about the perfect size for any number of reasons. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit and not by the sin nature. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will take us before the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we have the freedom in this nation to select our leaders to vote. Father, we know there's a lot of corruption, and we pray that you would expose that corruption in the voting process. Father, we know that there are a lot of people who are running who don't know what they're doing. They have agendas to destroy the Constitution rather than to defend it, and so they swear a false oath. And, Father, we pray that you would expose that, that people in this nation would wake up. But, Father, we know that the only real solution isn't a political one, although that is part of a long-term solution. The only true solution is a change of spiritual orientation. That's what made this nation a wonderful, successful, freedom- and liberty-loving nation to begin with, was it was grounded in the Word and people were grounded in the Word. But now, Father, we live in a very different world when people have made themselves out to be a God. And what we are seeing, we believe, is is your judgment on us. It's not that you're going to judge us for this. It is this is the judgment. You are bringing, bringing to bear the consequences of rebellious decisions just as you did in Israel. So, Father, we pray that as believers we might stand fast. We may not be influenced or pressured into the mold of the world. And that you would give us grace and the strength to be faithful witnesses and to stick to your word and be faithful in being a light shining in this wicked and dark, perverse generation. Pray that tonight as we study, you'll help us to understand this this important topic of biblical love, that we may recognize that this is the sine qua non of the Christian life, and that it is the evidence, the ultimate evidence of the reality of Jesus in the, in this world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. One uh, thing about dealing with civil government before we get started is there's a little kerfuffle going on as a result of something that uh, Dr. Ed Young at Second Baptist said on Sunday. I believe he was totally within his legal rights as well as his biblical responsibilities in addressing current affairs from a biblical framework. And there was nothing that um, anyone should or could find fault with. But we know that there are a lot of people who are hostile to anything Christians say and anything that conservatives say. And no matter how much... uh, how much they may understand and realize that ice cream is sweet and vanilla ice cream is white, they're going to tell you that those those uh, those conservatives and those Christians want to say it's sour and black and they're wrong, and um, that's just how they think. They have they're calling good evil, and evil good. 
And so when Dr. Young said those things, there were immediately these organizations for uh, keeping religion out of America. They have distorted and misunderstood and misrepresented the statement separation of church and state, which is not a legal phrase or a phrase in any legal document in the history of the United States. It came out of a letter of uh, from Thomas Jefferson, to the Baptist Church in Danbury, Connecticut, where they were concerned that with his election that government would be intruding itself upon churches because he was viewed as such a secularist. And what he was saying wasn't that the church should stay out of government, but he was, uh, he was uh, affirming that the government would stay out of the church. And that's how you interpret a phrase within context. But, of course, we know that there are so many people who don't understand that, can't read, and can't interpret, unfortunately. And so the church was seen as being independent of the government from the very foundation of the nation. Therefore, because of the First Amendment, churches were not taxable for, in order for a church to come under uh, taxation, it would have to be under the authority of the government. And the church was never under the authority of the government. And about maybe 12, 14, 15 years ago, I was at a, a meeting of the uh, Houston Area Pastors Council at a church down off of Gulf, uh, off the Gulf Freeway, um, Back then, Tim LaHaye was still alive, and Tim came and spoke. And then we had a session afterwards that was conducted by Kelly Shackelford, who's one of the chief lawyers for Liberty Legal. And I, I get their emails all the time, and they do a tremendous job defending Christians and defending churches and Christian organizations from the pressures from government and from people to shut down the voice of the church. And, um, and they, he has argued and won numerous cases before the United States Supreme Court. So when we got a chance for Q&A and afterwards, I went over and we had a conversation for about 10 or 15 minutes about this whole issue of separation of church and state and specifically uh, the 501c3 status. I, I was fortunate to be very well informed because a pastor that I had uh, worked with for many, many years and who ordained me, who was a pastor at that time of Tomball Bible Church, uh, was very much aware of these issues. He had been in business, mortgage banking, long before he w- went to seminary. And so this was not news to me. In 1954, churches were uh, added to Section 501c3 of the tax code. Now, a 501c3 organization is a non-taxable, non-profit organization and that is approved by the government. That puts them under the authority of the IRS. And there was an amendment to the tax code that's called the Johnson Amendment after Lyndon Johnson, who was from Texas and hated churches, and uh, was not much of a Christian. If he was saved, I don't know, but he certainly didn't uh, let that affect any of his views. And um, 
So there was a, there was a, these stipulations, and since then there has been the distortion that has been uh, really the IRS likes the distortion because it gives them more power, but people misquote it all all, all of the time, and so I've got some uh, interesting things here. But uh, what what basically is said is that the organization of a five hundred one c three organization cannot support or advocate for any particular cause or a political cause or legislation or candidate. That does not say that the pastor or any Sunday school teacher teaching in, within that organization can't voice their opinion. That's protected by the First Amendment. It says the organization can't. So I can come up here and say, I think you all ought to vote for this candidate or that candidate or this other piece of legislation all day long, and I can put it out and I can state it, but that's my, legally that is my opinion. It is not the opinion of West Houston Bible Church unless the Board of Deacons convenes and votes and says West Houston Bible Church supports this candidate and this position. That's what it means when it says the organization. And so when a pastor gets up and uh, advocates for a candidate or a political party or a piece of legislation, that's just his opinion in looking at it legally. And people can accept it or, or reject it. But the way the left looks at that is the church is getting involved in politics. And, of course, like Lyndon Johnson, they don't want the church uh, saying anything about the ethics of legislation or, or anything else. And actually, the way the IRS uh, sees this, um, in this first slide, uh, churches were not required to be 501c3 in order to be tax-exempt because they already were tax-exempt. Before that, they were, churches had never been taxed. They were not required to be 501c3, but see, the, the intimidation factors out there and the urban myth is that, yes, churches need to be 501c3 in order to be nonprofit. I don't know how many people have told me that over the years, and I've had to stop whatever I was doing and give them a nice, informed uh, lecture on co- understanding IRS regulations and why they are pressuring people to do this. So churches are not are tax-exempt because they're churches, not because they're 501c3. And in fact, churches should not be 501c3 at all because who's the authority over you if you're a 501c3 organization? It's the IRS. So you've given up your wonderful freedom as a church, as an autonomous, independent uh, religious organization in order to put yourself under the authority of the IRS. In IRS Publication 557, There are some organizations are not required to file Form 1023. These include churches, interchurch organizations of local units of a church, conventions or associations of churches, or integrated auxiliaries of a church, such as a men's or women's organization, religious school, mission society, or youth group. These organizations are exempt automatically if they meet the requirements of Section 501c3. Uh, and that is, the, in Section 501c3, it has spe- specific special rules. And these special rules with respect to 501c3 are 
A, new organizations must notify the secretary that they are applying for recognition of Section 501c3 status. The exceptions, C, are mandatory uh, exceptions. Subsections A and B shall not apply to churches, their integrated auxiliaries or conventions or associations of churches. And according to IRS Publication 526, uh, organizations that qualify to receive deductible co- uh, contributions, you can deduct your contributions only if you make them to a qualified organization. To become a qualified organization, most organizations other than churches and governments, as described below, must apply to the IRS. So it's very clear churches ought not. Uh, one of the ways that, that the IRS intimidates and pressures churches is that they won't, there, there's a part of the tax code that allows a pastor, a minister of the gospel to conscientiously object to social security. And many pastors I know have an ex- social security exemption. But if you are, are not ordained by a 501c3, then you will not have your ordination recognized as legitimate by the IRS. Now, nobody's fought that, unfortunately, and one reason they probably do is they don't want to bring, bring attention to it right now because that's, that is what allows many pastors to pastor small churches because they don't have that extra burden of self-employment tax. Okay. Now, in a book called In Caesar's Grip by Peter Kershaw, Steve Nestor, an IRS senior revenue officer retired, states, I am not the only IRS employee who's wondered why churches go to the government and seek permission to be exempted from a tax they didn't owe to begin with and to seek a tax-deductible status that they've always had anyway. Many of us have marveled at how church leaders want to be regulated and controlled by an agency of government that most Americans have prayed would just get out of their lives. Churches are in an amazingly unique position, but they don't seem to know or appreciate the implications of what it would mean to be free of government control. So that is... uh, so. There's nothing to, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be concerned about. There are dozens of these lawsuits filed every year by these organizations seeking to attempt to intimidate church. And they're very successful in a lot of churches because a lot of pastors and a lot of church boards are completely ignorant of what now you are very well informed about. And because of their ignorance, they don't want anything said by anybody about anything that might relate uh, to politics. The other reason is it's controversial, and they may not be able to pay the bills if the pastor says something controversial. All right, let's look at the Word of God, and that will make us all feel a lot better. Philippians, we are going to be looking at this topic of love because of the way it is mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And the sad thing is, is so many people in our world just don't understand what love is. They think it's an emotion. If you look it up in the dictionary, that's what Webster says, so it must be an emotion. But that's not how the Bible defines it. That's not how the Bible describes it. And so we come to a passage where Paul is praying that their love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. 
And there's a lot to, to be said about how what he says there, that we are to pray that our love may abound more and more, which indicates that our capacity for love is going to grow and grow. We have a small measure of love when we're first saved, perhaps, like an infant baby. But over time, as we feed on the word and as we grow and mature, then that capacity to love God and to love others is going to grow and mature. And we ought to, ought to pray for that, uh, as Paul prays for it in Philippians 1 9. And it's, it's associated with the, the application of love is associated with knowledge, epinosis knowledge. We'll look at that word as we go along and, uh, and discernment, understanding. And so uh, we'll talk about those in, in just a minute. Now, in our context of Paul's prayer, he says that he's thankful to the uh, Philippians for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who had begun a good work of financial partnership in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, which is the judgment seat of Christ, the bema that occurs comes after the rapture. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you on my mind, and as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partners with me of grace. That's the first part of the prayer. Then he says in verse 9, which we began last week, and this I pray, that your love may abound more, still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. There again is our second reference to the day of Christ. The, the, there will be an accountability at the judgment seat of Christ, not for salvation, but with reference to our future roles and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So as we get into this, he's talking about love. He uses the word agape. Now, there are four basic words that are used in the Scripture. One is used only one time. That's storge, like a mother's love. But you have agape, you have philos, and um, agape and philos, and then storge. So it's just those, these two, philos and agape, that are your primary words for love, and they're related verbs, agapao and uh, phileo. Agape is your broader term. It covers a wide variety uh, of love, but philos is a more intimate, friendly type of love, in fact, the noun can refer to a friend, uh, someone you care uh, about a lot. Uh, the verb phileo is uh, never used where God is the subject with the object of unbelievers. God does not have phileo love for unbelievers. He has agap, agapao love for unbelievers. So that makes a distinction, especially when you get to the fact that you get to the last letter to the seven churches in, in Laodicea. And Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so many people take that out of context. The two, One or two verses prior to that, uh, Christ has a phileo love for that congregation. They're believers. 
him standing at the door is not because he wants in to save them, but he's saved, but he's been locked out of the congregation. There's no fellowship. There's no walking by the Spirit. So that verse is taken out of context by many different people and organizations, and people always ask me, well, do you think somebody can be saved if they invite Jesus into their heart? I, and I say, a person believes in Jesus. That's a mental act. And God knows if they believe in Jesus or not, no matter what kind of foolishness comes out of their mouth, that they're told to pray to get saved. You don't have to pray to be saved. You don't have to say, Father, I'm a sinner. I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. You have, If you could pray that, you've already believed in your mind that Christ died for your sins. That's what saves you, not the sinner's prayer, not inviting Jesus into your heart. Those are all secondary. And you do that because you realize Jesus is the one who saves you, and he saves you by his death on the cross. And that's and once you grasp that with your mind and you believe it, you're saved. Because that's what it means. Over and over again, John in his gospel uses the verb for believe over 95 times. He never qualifies it. He never says truly believe, sincerely believe, genuinely believe, or any other qualifier. It's just believe. You either believe or you don't. And if you believe it for a second, then you're saved forever. So then we see that we're saved in knowledge and all discernment. And this word epinosis, gnosis is the basic noun for knowledge. Epi at the beginning is an intensifier. It's a preposition that intensifies the meaning. And when you look at the usage, it seems to indicate a knowledge of a more intimate sense. It's, it's, it's not just a fuller knowledge, but there's something that's a little richer and intimate, especially toward God. And so we see this in passages like Colossians 1, uh, 9 and 10, where Paul writes, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. See, that sounds so similar to the first part of Philippians 1, doesn't it? And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge, epinosis, with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So this is talking about a knowledge that is related to understanding the will of God, wisdom or skill in living, and and spiritual understanding is discernment, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Ephesians 4, 1, uh, not walking like the rest of the Gentiles do, do in Ephesians uh, 4, 17, uh, or 419, th- that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, so that's that's the focal point here. And asthesis, asthesis indicates uh, perception, judgment, discernment, especially toward mankind. Epinosis seems to be directed toward the things of God, Whereas the aesthesis, the discernment, is directed toward the things of man. So we need to have that fuller, intimate knowledge of God on the one hand so that we have greater discernment of what is going on in the human realm uh, around us. 
And the goal of that is to approve the things that are excellent, not the things that are better, the things that aren't simple. There are a lot of things that aren't sin, but the excellent things pursue the, a higher goal of excellence. And it has to do with being able to evaluate these issues of life so you can make the most excellent decision. And the re- result of this is that uh, we have been filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now, there's a lot of similarity between the fruits of righteousness and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so all of this directs us towards a path of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And that relates to love. So last time I started with some of this, I reorganized my, my, my data and, um, we're going to look at this a couple of different ways. I may, okay, we're going to look at this. What happened? I thought I had all of these listed, but I don't. Somehow I lost that slide. All right. So what we're going to look at here is, five, uh, six or seven areas. Seven areas and seven passages. First of all, we're going to go to John 13, 34, and 35. This is our first first point here. And in John 13, 34, and 35, uh, the Lord sets love as the ultimate indicator, the ultimate barometer, the ultimate uh, evidence of the fact that we are disciples, uh, that we are learning, applying, growing believers in Christ who walk by the Spirit. Now, you're going to hear some people who say that a disciple and a believer are the same thing. All believers are disciples. They will make that equivalent. That's very confusing, but that comes out of a lordship view and Calvinism, and it's not correct. There are many who are disciples who you go to various passages like John 6, and there were many who were called disciples, but when Jesus started laying out what was expected, of a disciple as opposed to a believer. They just couldn't do it. A disciple involves somebody who's going to be obedient in every area of life. He's going to be a learner. He's going to grow and mature. He's hungry for the word. He's going to be involved. Where somebody can be a believer and not be very involved, not grow very much, not learn very much, they just are too distracted by the cares of of the world. So, But for a disciple, a growing, maturing believer who's walking by the Spirit, love becomes the ultimate indicator of the fact that they're a disciple. Then the next place we're going to go is in Luke chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 29 to 37, actually 25 to 37, to get the context. And that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's very important to understand because it illustrates what this love is, this biblical love is, as both unconditional and impersonal, and we get our definitions of those terms in that passage. Then third, we're going to go to the greatest example of love, which is God giving the Lord Jesus Christ, John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. And then we'll go to a description of love in 1 Corinthians 13.1 through 8, and then fifth, we look at our passage in Philippians 1.9, just to summarize what I've already said there about love. And then sixth, we'll go to Galatians 4.22 that informs us that biblical love is not something we produce. It's a fruit of the Spirit. 
it's the first one mentioned in the list of different attributes. One fruit, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, the first is love. And then seventh, we'll end with First John, which has a number of passages uh, related to the thinking and life of the growing and maturing believer. So that's that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at John thirteen thirty four, John ten uh, twenty five to thirty seven. So we'll start here with the, uh, the statement Jesus gives to the disciples. Now, what's the context of John thirteen? John thirteen. Remember, I refer to it once a month when we're at, uh, doing communion is that this is the Last Supper. It is when the Lord Jesus Christ observes the Passover, the Seder meal, with his disciples, and he's going to uh, focus, he's going to assign new meaning to the matzah, the unleavened bread, and to the, to the wine. But in John 13, the emphasis is really on this, this um, Washing of Peter's feet. That's the center part of the first 13 verses. And Jesus washes Peter's feet. And that's an illustration of continual cleansing from sin after salvation. Uh, because uh, the, the, we've gone through that before that Peter does, Oh Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, If I don't wash your feet, and he uses it, uh, the word nipto, uh, so did Peter, which just means if I wash my hands, wash my face, wash my ears, wash my feet, it's nipto. You're just washing part of the body. If you're, wa- if you're taking a bath, it's luo. You're washing the whole body. And in the Old Testament, when Exodus 40 and an earlier chapter was, were translated into Greek, when the high priest is anointed, he's washed completely. It's luo. Greek only, I mean, Hebrew only had one word for washing. But the rabbis who translated understood that the washing at his inauguration uh, was a full bath. But after that, the, the word, um, uh, the word nipto was used for when they get, the priest would go into the tabernacle or the temple and wash his hands, wash his feet, according to the ritual, Pictures continual cleansing from sin. So Jesus is using that background, and he's telling Peter, if I don't nipto, if I don't partially wash you, if I don't cleanse you, see, you've already been fully cleansed. Jesus says that. You've been, all of you have been fully cleansed except one, and that was Judas. He wasn't a believer. All of you have been fully cleansed, but if you don't let me cleanse you, you'll have no part. We talked about this when we're going through rewards. You won't have a, uh, an inheritance. The uh, word for part is a technical word for the share of a person's inheritance in a, in a will. And so after that, then Jesus begins to teach the disciples. He has, Judas is gone. And he begins to teach the disciples, and he comes down to John 13, 34, and 35. And he says, a new commandment I give you, and the Greek word there for new is the same word that's used to describe the New Testament, kine diatheke. It's the word kainos, and it refers to a, a, something new of a, uh, of a different kind. It's something that was not previously present. 
And so it's a new commandment. It's different from the Old Testament commandment in Leviticus 19.18, which said that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus says that you are to love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, by this love for one another, all will know that you are my disciples. See, that's why I said this is the greatest apologetic. This is the greatest defense of the truth of Christianity is the love that believers have for one another. Now, if you look around at what goes on in most churches, you wouldn't think that anybody ever heard that. But that is what Jesus said. It's only, it, it is for a growing, maturing disciple. And by, by this, all will know that you're Christians. No, it's all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that is the new commandment, and that is the uh, ultimate indication of the fact that we are disciples, is the love that we have for one another. Now, how do we understand this love? Is this an emotional love? Is this a sentimental love? Is this a um, uh, the kind of love that you have for a friend? Uh, no, it's not that. Agape, again, is the word that's used here. Uh, or agapao, the verb, is the one that's used here, actually, that you ha- love one another. And so we get a picture of it earlier in the Gospels in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is the illustration of love. Uh, the trouble with some things in the Bible, like baptism, uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is invisible and non-experiential, and, um, and love... Love is very hard to define, and it's very, very difficult for a lot of people to get a grasp. They want to think of it purely as emotion, and it's a mental attitude. It is ultimately the desire to do that which is best for the object of love. But it's not what's best for me for that person. It's what's best. So you have to have an understanding of an objective best uh, in order to truly love someone and not a selfish best. It's not what I think is best for you, but what is truly best in light of the Word of God for for a person. And so here, uh, Jesus gives a, an, a, an illustration, and the opening f- um, four verses really give us the background for why he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so it begins in verse 25 of Luke 10, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Okay, this was, the word for testing here is usually taken as something negative, and it may have been, but it might not have been. It's a neutral word. It's an evaluation to see what he's going to say. And it could very, it's usually taken to mean that he's trying to expose the flaws and trap Jesus. And that's possible, but it, it also could be just an honest question, but it could have entrapment overtones as well. Uh, the certain lawyer stood up, tested him, and this lawyer is a class, probably a class of Pharisees who was an expert in the Mosaic Law. He would have had the entire Mosaic Law from Exodus 20 to the end of Exodus, Exodus 20 through Exodus 40, 
all of Leviticus and all of Deuteronomy memorized at the very least. And, and, um, and he would have had it memorized probably in Hebrew and in Aramaic. So he is, a, he is, uh, the legal expert. And it's very interesting here because this legal expert on the Mosaic law addresses Jesus as a teacher. And he asks a question that suggests that he believes that Jesus is qualified to answer the question as well. He is, by calling him teacher, he's showing a measure of, of respect and that he, um, he thought, he thinks that Jesus has given evidence in conversation that he's an expert on the law, so he asked him that, that question. And he says to him, let me skip to the next slide. He, he um, says to him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, most people look at this and they think that what he's asking Jesus is, how do I get saved? How does a person go to heaven? I don't think that's what he's asking at all. Because if he's asking, how do I go to heaven, Jesus is giving him a works answer and not a trust in me answer, which he does in other places. So what shall I do to inherit inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that this phrase, inherit eternal life, is only used four times in the Gospels, and at every time something you have to do something to inherit eternal life. And what I, the conclusion that I have taught is that inheriting eternal life is something more than getting saved. It is experiencing the fullness and richness of life now that is part of eternal life. Jesus said, I did not come like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. So it's talking about that second category of life. It relates to this living a full life now in light of future Rewards, And remember from our study on rewards in the judgment seat of Christ that salvation is free and rewards are earned. Uh, numerous passages for that. So he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus answers him. Jesus said to him, well, tell me what is in the Torah. Jesus said, what is written in the law, the Torah, what is your reading of it? How do you understand it? So Jesus a- asked him the question. And then the lawyer, the Pharisaical, the Pharisee who's a legal expert says, answers him and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting the two greatest commandments, and they are from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, that word, Hebrew word translated strength is kind of an interesting word because it's, it's a very difficult one to define. It's sort of like um, with, with everything you've got. With all your, you know, as my mother would say, all your moxie. You know, you just give it everything you got, all your oomph. You just, you, lo- you love the Lord your God with everything in you. 
You shall not, and then Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the question you should be answering for yourself is, is this verse giving the, the requirements for getting justified, for having eternal salvation? No. Loving the Lord, loving God, loving the Lord, and loving your, your neighbor as yourself are not conditions for getting saved. They weren't conditions for getting saved in the Old Testament. The Mosaic law is not a legal system for teaching the Jew, Jewish people how to get saved. It is teaching the Jewish people how they can enjoy a rich, full life if they're walking in obedience, uh, in obedience to the Lord. And so um, the, the question that, that he's asking is not one related to getting justified or getting saved. Um, so when he says this, what does Jesus say? In verse 28, Jesus says to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. That sounds like a work salvation if that's what he's talking about. But but that's not what is going on here. Uh, what's going on here is uh, that Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament, those passages, the same way they were interpreted in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 18.4, God says to the people, You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And in verse 5, Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am Yahweh. Well, he's not talking about having eternal life in that passage, but having a real uh, a full, successful life when they are in the land. You want to have prosperity in the land. You want to enjoy the land. You want to have peace and stability. You want to have no inflation. You want to have minimal criminality. Then you keep my commandments and you will have a rich, full, abundant life. Um, so he's, the law was never given as a means of salvation. Walt Kaiser, who I got to meet a few years ago at pre-trib, actually that's, that's wrong. I met him in the parking lot at Gordon-Conwell Seminary one day when I was pastoring up in Connecticut, and we were just driving around Massachusetts and drove over there to look at the campus and uh, Dr. Kaiser came out. He was, um, I think he was the president at the time. And I had no, read many books by him, and I had heard heard him speak audio recordings and things over the years. And he came out in the parking lot, was parked next to us, and so I got out of the car and went over and introduced myself and talked to him for a little bit and expressed my appreciation for his work. And he has written a number of really outstanding, um, outstanding books. Uh, great, great books on theology of the Old Testament. He's a dispensationalist, spoke at pre-trib a couple of years ago. And he argues in a paper he wrote called The Law as Guidance for the Promotion of Holiness that Moses tells them how to maintain fellowship with God and how to find a rich life now, that the Mosaic Law is not written for 
uh, for the Jew to get to heaven. They were to get to heaven the same way uh, Abraham was justified in Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Salvation has never been by works or by obedience to the law. Uh, in the Mishnah, it also states that the more that uh, people are obedient to the law, the fuller their life will be. The shortest phrase translation is lots of law, lots of life. And that the study and application of the Torah will lead to a full, rich life. It's not about getting into heaven. So that's not the question that's being asked here. And Jesus is saying, you you answered well, you do this, and you're going to have a rich life. But what is he saying you have to do? You have to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the issue in this whole episode, because he has a false view of his neighbor. Because the Pharisees interpreted their neighbor as a fellow Jew. Not a Samaritan, not a Gentile, but just Jews. If you loved your neighbors, your Jews, as yourself, then you were fulfilling the law. But Jesus is going to point out that that was an inadequate interpretation of what it meant to be uh, the law. So... uh, In verse 29 we read, but he, that is the Pharisaical lawyer, the Pharisee lawyer, says, uh, wanting to justify himself, that is, because he wants to be satisfied that he's fulfilled the commandment to love his neighbor as himself. And so he thinks he's got it when he says, ask Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus is going to answer that with this well-known parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. So he tells this story, and he, uh, Jesus answered him and says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, clothing wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So this man gets mugged on the way down to uh, Jericho from Jerusalem. Uh, this was in the uh, time of Jesus was considered to be an extremely dangerous journey. It's only about um, 15 miles from Jerusalem downhill to Jericho. In that 15 miles, you go through various uh, hairpin curves, and you go up and down, and you skirt the edge of canyons, and in, in the first century, you went by foot or you rode a donkey. And you descended from Jerusalem at 2,600 feet down to uh, Jericho, which was 800 feet below sea level. So you have an elevation drop in 15 miles of uh, 3,400 feet. That's a very rapid drop. You can ride a skateboard down, but you probably won't live, and it'd be very difficult uh, going back up. Many of you have been to Israel with me, and you know we've gone up that road. That's a tough road to go up. And it was also very dangerous because uh, there were a lot of... um, there were a lot of ambushes but from bandits and robbers along the way who would attack caravans and they would attack uh, individuals who were traveling and mug them. Uh, this road was called the Ascent of Adumim. 
And that word adumim comes from the word, the Hebrew word for blood, because a lot of blood was shed on that road. So it was uh, uh, extremely, uh, extremely dangerous. You can uh, ride it. It takes 30 to 45 minutes just to go from Jericho up to Jerusalem, and that's only 15 miles, so you're not going very fast. But So Jesus says a certain man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. He gets ambushed and, and uh, mugged. They take his clothes. They wound him. They departed, and they left him half dead. So that anybody who went by would would know he was he was bare, barely alive, and so he goes on to say that uh, th- three people are going to go by and they're going to see this man by by the side of the road, left naked, bruised, bleeding, and unconscious. And so first a priest goes down the road. Now in and, and what Jesus is um, is is doing here is he's stating this in such a way that it sort of uh, uh, shocks their listeners because they think that there are priests and there are Jews and um, and that's and then there's everybody else so here he's talking about a priest and a Levite a priest was a Levite who was in the priestly line and the rest of those that were not in the priestly line served in some capacity uh, in, in, in the, some other capacity in the uh, temple. But the requirement for a priest is that he is to love a neighbor as himself. And here's this Jewish fellow. Uh, so they're supposed, they've interpreted the law that the neighbor f- refers to another Jew. And they just look at him and go, ba- go past him. They don't stop. They don't help. They don't do anything. And so the priest goes by and he doesn't even look to see uh, if he's alive, if, if he was dead, uh, then they would become unclean if they touched him, but they don't even um, take the time to check and see if he's dead or alive. And so they just go on. And then the Levite goes by, and he just looks and acts like it's not there, and he goes on. But then a certain Samaritan comes along. Now, this is really uh, an important indication here. If you don't understand a Samaritan, you miss the whole point, that the way Israel is set up, in the south you have Judea, in the north is Galilee, and the area in between is some area. It's Samaria. And it was uh, the area of the many of the northern tribes were had land in that area. But in... Um, 722 B.C., when the Assyrians attacked, they destroyed the northern kingdom of of Israel. And what their policy was, was to take conquered peoples and take most of them and resettle them to various widespread areas around their empire so they couldn't get together and cause a a riot or, or a revolt. And so they took all of these Jews and they scattered them across the Assyrian Empire and they took other conquered peoples and they resettled them into what had been the northern kingdom of Israel. They left a certain number of Jews there. So these Jews are intermarrying with these uh, Gentiles uh, that were there and they created sort of a mixed uh, ethnicity there that was made up. They they weren't pure descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. They were uh, of mixed uh, ethnic heritage. 
And so uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, the Jews that are Jews in Judea are, look down on them. The Samaritans didn't accept all of the Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had different, some different dates. They observed rituals different, and they had a temple that they uh, erected up on Mount Gerizim, which is where they would slaughter the animals. And to this day, you still have Samaritans who observe Passover, slaughter uh, lambs up on Mount Gerizim. And we've been up there and seen some of the Samaritan priests moving around in that in that area. But they were despised by the Jews. And so this Samaritan sees this Jew, this, this, this Jew who is a declared enemy of his, and he is going to help this Jew. Now to put this in a little perspective, this would be sort of like, um, a, back in the 1890s having a uh, black former slave, an African former slave in the South, uh, walking along a road and seeing a KKK Klansman who was all beaten up and uh, and robbed by the side of the road, and knowing how much, even knowing how much that Klansman hated him, he would take the time to. Uh, heal his wounds, take him to an inn, put him up, pay for his lodging, pay for new clothes, everything like that. That's the level of, of racial animosity that existed between the Jews in Judea and the Samaritans. In fact, this, this uh, lawyer won't even, in his answer, he won't even call him a Samaritan, won't pronounce the word, and this was the mentality of the of the Jews in Judea. So this this Samaritan sees him and sees what's happened, has compassion. He's exhibiting real uh, biblical love. And so he went to him, bandaged his wounds. He has oil. He pours oil on him, gives him wine to drink, and sets him up on his own animal donkey and takes him to an inn. So he's taking him further down the road, gets him down towards Jericho and takes him to an inn and take, to take care of him. But he goes beyond that. Most of us would say, okay, we got him here. He's okay. Take care of himself. But he goes a lot further. He get, he pays for his lodging and pays the innkeeper. And then he says, you keep a tab on all of his expenses. He needs to stay here until he gets well. And if this isn't enough to cover all of his expenses, then you send me the bill and I'll pay the rest of his expenses. And then Jesus asks the tough question. He says to the lawyer, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer says, notice he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. So what do we learn from this? First of all, we learn that neither the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite knew the Jew who had been mugged. There's no personal knowledge. There's no personal relationship. They're complete and total strangers. And... 
so the application is that love extends to those who are absolute strangers to us, that we don't have to know them or know anything about them. It isn't related to anything in them. It has to do with our own character and our own uh, spiritual maturity. So the application of love extends to someone that is not even known by the person who is showing love. That involves people on the highway, people on the freeway. That involves people at the grocery store. That involves people that you run into. Um, if you're serving in some capacity and you're dealing with a lot of strangers that don't have an IQ that reaches room temperature, uh, very frustrating uh, that applies to everybody because everyone is in the image and likeness of God. That's the foundation for this. And so we treat, we are to treat them with courtesy and with respect and with good manners. Something that doesn't exist inside the parking lot of my neighborhood HEB. No one there that's behind the wheel of a car has ever heard of courtesy. Second point. The recipient of the Samaritan's act of love was part of a culture that was totally hostile to the Samaritan religion and people. They would not walk through their territory. If you were traveling from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, you'd cross to the east side of the Jordan River, come down through Perea, and then after you'd gotten south of Samaria, you'd cross back over by Jericho and come come up to, to Jerusalem. So they wouldn't walk through their territory, and even the lawyer wouldn't pronounce their name. Third, the neighbor is analogous to anyone we meet, whether we know them or not, like them or not, appreciate them or not. He's another human being in the image and likeness of God, and therefore we treat him with honor, respect, and courtesy and aid. Fourth, this means that the love is not conditioned on the behavior or likability or any other positive factor in the one who receives it. Even if the one who is shown love is an enemy or someone hostile to the one showing the love. Fifth thing that we see here is this love is called impersonal because we don't have to have a personal relationship or personal connection or personal knowledge of the person we're showing love to. It's not an emotional love. It's not, oh, we're going to go up and give you a hug and tell you everything's great or anything like that. It's just that we're going to be kind and generous and courteous uh, to everyone. That's showing love. And it's unconditional because there's no condition that you have to treat me a certain way and then I will treat you with respect. That's not part of it. Sixth, this is a demonstration of grace. It, a love that is not based on grace is not love. That's why you have such a high divorce rate. It's because there's no real love. There's a lot of lust, but there's no real love in a lot of these marriages. And it's just a convenience thing. They like each other for a while. Okay, the third thing, I'll end with this. The greatest example of love is described in John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. John 3.16, and I'm retranslating it. For God so loved the world in this way, or excuse me, for God loved the world in this way. The translation in the King James, for God so loved the world, that, the so that is a translation of a Greek word, hutos, which means in this way or in this manner. So God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world. 
He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 echoes that in different words. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Both passages, we have the verbs for um, uh, uh, for uh, you have uh, agapao in three sixteen and agape in Romans five eight. You don't have phile, I mean philos or phileo. Okay, next time we're going to come back and we're going to begin with First Corinthians thirteen one through eight, and then we will go through the other uh, parts of this. The longest part is going to be when we get to First John. John says a lot about loving your brother versus hating your brother. There's a lot there in First John and a lot of misconceptions about that because people think it's contrasting believer and unbeliever, but it's contrasting the believer that's growing and the believer that's not growing. So we'll get to that next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to... Uh, be challenged with what biblical love is all about. And when we walk by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is working to produce that in our lives. And that means we've got to learn to to quell the self-centeredness and self-absorption and to focus on that which is best for others in terms of what your Word says and to treat people with courtesy and kindness and love. So, Father, we pray that we might pray for that and that we would grow and our love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.